Welcome to the WBGO Journal. I'm Doug Doyle. Today, we'll continue to preview some of Tuesday's key election races in New York and New Jersey. Though the district is friendlier on paper, Rasmussen says Kim's Republican challenger, Bob Healy, has a shot to unseat Kim. There's political controversy over some flyers that are going to area voters. The flyer circulating is a remnant of our country's oppressive, segregated past. Third Story podcast host Leo Sidron takes us to New York for a concert with Jorge Drexler. Originally scheduled for March 2020, it was rescheduled three times because of COVID. And we'll talk about the future of track and field in the United States with retiring Olympian and current national javelin champion Kara Winger and the head of USA Track and Field, Max Siegel. We have an opportunity as the number one participatory sport in high school and middle school uh, to have cultural impact. All this coming up today on the WBGO Journal. New Yorkers head to the polls on Tuesday to elect a governor and decide on other key races. WBGO Scott Pringle gives us a preview of what to expect. Republican Long Island Congressman Lee Zeldin has chipped away at Governor Kathy Hochul's lead in the polls as of late. St. John's University political science professor Brian Brown. You know, for Zeldin, his path of victory really comes through New York City. He needs to do better than most uh, Republicans have done in the city. You know, he'll do well upstate. He'll probably do well on Long Island. When it comes to Hochul, Brown says she needs her base to come out to win, with the governor having a huge advantage with registered Democrats over Republicans in the state. Meanwhile, Brown thinks there are six to ten competitive congressional races, especially ones on Long Island and in the Hudson Valley. I don't think either campaign has done a good job reaching out to younger voters, and I think many of them will probably sit this one out. Unlike in 2020, when many, I think, young voters went out to vote either for or against Donald Trump. Meanwhile, the only statewide ballot question asked voters for the state to borrow more than $4 billion for environmental projects. Scott Pringle, WBGO News. New Jersey Congressman Andy Kim was easily re-elected to a second term in 2020, despite his district also voting for then-President Donald Trump. Kim's district became friendlier Democratic territory after the new congressional lines were drawn. But the incumbent is not taking that for granted, and his Republican challenger is staying competitive in the race. WBGO's Kenneth Burns has this overview. Kim says he doesn't know why he was one of a handful of Democrats who won re-election to Congress in districts that went for Trump. But a couple of things stands out when talking to people. They respect the fact that I came into this job from a career in public service. I was a career public servant, a diplomat. The incumbent also prides himself on engagement. When we caught up with him last month, he had held 55 town halls in his district overall. When the 3rd District was redrawn, the more conservative Ocean County portion was swapped for areas that Micah Rasmussen at the Rebovich Institute at Ryder University says is friendlier Democratic territory. Like Lawrence Township, where Ryder is, and Hamilton and West Windsor, those towns are areas where a Democrat absolutely wants to run. The Monmouth County towns, not always so friendly terrain, but also a smaller part of the district. Though the district is friendlier on paper, Rasmussen says Kim's Republican challenger, Bob Healy, has a shot to unseat Kim. The former punk rocker, who runs his family's yacht and marine business, has called Kim a partisan rubber stamp. But Healy has been accused of the same, based on his talking points and his website. He pushes back on the criticism by pointing to Kim's membership with the Congressional Progressive Caucus. I'm not going to join the uh, the far-right caucus. 
That's not something that I would do. There's a problem solvers caucus down there. That seems something that's more in line with how I'd like to get things done in D.C. Both candidates have broke from their party leaders at different points. Kim broke from House Speaker Nancy Pelosi to sponsor a ban on members of Congress playing the stock market. Haley proclaimed President Biden as the legitimate winner of the 2020 election, adding that those who crossed the line on January 6th should be prosecuted. Kenneth Burns, WBGO News. New Jersey Democratic leaders say they are renouncing hate after some people in the state received a flyer condemning racial equity initiatives like affirmative action. It accused the Biden administration and left-wing officials who support racial equity of discrimination against white and Asian Americans. At a rally in Patterson, Passaic County State Assemblywoman Shavonda Sumter this week called the flyers racist propaganda. That are being circulated by the Republican Party to households not only in Bergen and Passaic, but across the state. These acts cannot go unaddressed. Today I am here to tell you we are never going back. The flyer circulating is a remnant of our country's oppressive, segregated past. It reflects the very same bigoted statements and sentiments that made affirmative action necessary. And we push to move New Jersey forward. Assemblywoman Sumter and other New Jersey Democrats blamed the Republican Party, though it appears the flyers came from American First Legal, a right-wing nonprofit organization founded by former Trump administration official Stephen Miller. Billy Primpe, the Republican candidate in New Jersey's 9th Congressional District, says he attended the rally to show his disapproval of the message on the flyers and to push back, it claims that the Republican Party sent them to people in New Jersey. You guys are saying that the Republicans are putting this out. I didn't put any of that crap out. Congressman Bill Pasquale, meanwhile, Prempe's midterm opponent, says the flyers are sinister. What they want is to drag America back generations. The U.S. Supreme Court has recently taken up the case that could upend affirmative action, the policy of favoring people who belong to groups known to have historically faced discrimination in the U.S. A long-awaited concert, delayed because of the coronavirus pandemic, finally got to take place in New York City earlier this week. Third Story podcast host Leo Sidron was there for a true celebration. Taking the stage on Tuesday night at New York's Town Hall, singer-songwriter Jorge Drexler was met by an almost frenzied enthusiasm. Some of that energy may have been due to the fact that the show, as he would later explain, had been 942 days in the making. Originally scheduled for March 2020, it was rescheduled three times because of COVID before finally happening in November of 2022. In the intervening years, Jorge wrote and recorded Tinta y Tiempo, which translates as Ink and Time. It's one of his most celebrated records in a career that spans three decades and 15 albums. He opened the show with the album's opening track, El Plan Maestro, or The Master Plan, which recounts a kind of creation story of love on planet Earth. In Drexler's rendering, physics and poetry make beautiful bedfellows. In the opening lines of the song, he sings, It was the Mesoproterozoic Age when that visionary cell in a silent and heroic act, had a revolutionary idea. Tired of dividing by himself, he looked longingly at his neighbor, decided to mix, learned to laugh, and the story of the chicken and the egg was born. Corría la era del mesoproterozoico Cuando aquella célula visionaria it's hard to find too many other popular artists who bridge the space between science and art so comfortably. But these kinds of contradictions have been at the core of Drexler's story from the very start. His own creation story is the stuff of legend. It was nearly 30 years ago when Drexler, at the time a young ear, nose, and throat doctor in Uruguay, 
decided to try his luck as a professional songwriter. As the child of ENT doctors himself, it had been something of a foregone conclusion that he would follow in their footsteps and stay in the family business. But Jorge had also always played music ever since he was a boy. And all through medical school, he did concerts on the side. He even recorded a couple of albums of his own original songs. His music back in those days was somewhat sentimental. His voice was bright and youthful. The song Era de Amar, a love song that reads almost like a fable, appeared on his first record some 30 years ago. It begins, Once upon a time, it was a night like any other. It was at a table at a bar, and she looked at me like water from the sea. On Tuesday night at Town Hall, he returned to that old song, updating it musically. And he explained that the inclusion of some of his earliest work in a show that was made up largely of recent material was an experiment to see how the song held up over the test of time. I wanted to hear how it sounded a song that it was written 30 years ago, like this one that I'm going to play right now. It's called Era de Amar. Back when he wrote that song, he was still a doctor who played music on the side. But even back then, he had managed to establish himself enough as a songwriter around town that when big-name artists came through Montevideo, he sometimes had a chance to interact with them. On one such occasion, when the legendary Spanish artist Joaquin Sabina came to town, the two spent a memorable evening together trading songs and stories. Sabina was so impressed with the young doctor that he encouraged him to move to Madrid and make a go of it as an artist. That was how Jorge Drexler, the nice Jewish doctor from Uruguay, got to Spain and became one of the most influential songwriters of his generation. Today, with seven Latin Grammy wins under his belt and the first-ever Academy Award for a song in Spanish, he's reached legendary status among Latin American fans. And in a way, he can trace it back to that one fateful night in Montevideo with Joaquin Sabina. Jorge has memorialized that experience with Sabina in various songs over the course of his career. His 2017 song, Pongamos Que Hablo de Martinez, paints a vivid picture of the night they met. He writes, we closed four bars one after the other. Montevideo had already begun to wake up. You predicted greatness in my future. And after the night we had, who wouldn't have believed you? I followed your delirious advice and went to Madrid with my guitar and my songs. I think you know that the gift you gave me changed my entire life. Creo que sabes que el regalo que me hiciste me cambió la vida entera. Eventually, Joaquin Sabina would help to change Jorge's creative trajectory again when in 2003 the two collaborated on the song La Milonga del Moro Judío, a song written in an obscure poetic form called Decimas, something akin to the sonnet form in English. Both the subject matter and the poetic convention have occupied a large part of Drexler's energy since then. On Tuesday night at Town Hall, he played the song. The chorus translates as, I'm a Jewish Moor who lives among the Christians. I don't know which God is mine, nor who are my brothers. No sé que Dios es el mío, ni cuáles son mis hermanos. Writing in the poetic convention of Decimas has become common for Jorge, and he's devoted much of his later career to advocating on behalf of the form, finding other poets and writers who share his passion for the style, and he even gave a TED Talk about the significance of it. I interviewed Drexler in 2016, and he told me, It's like a linguistic prodigy. That form of verse is alive in every South American country I've ever known. And so I started asking myself these questions regarding the cultural life as a biological outcome, which I'm completely convinced that it is. Culture comes from biology in a very deep molecular way. Jorge once said that it took him 10 years after he left medicine and became a professional songwriter to figure out how to integrate his relationship with science and technology into his art. 
but eventually it became a major theme in his work. For example, on Tuesday, he performed songs about the emotional implications of telecommunication, the almighty algorithm, the law of conservation, and the sentimental potential in a screensaver. That song, called Salva Pantallas, is dedicated to his siblings in Uruguay. Next song is called Salva Pantallas. In the chorus, he sings, I keep your photo in the corner of my screensaver. On Tuesday night, the audience sang it with him. Drexler himself believes that his job is to build bridges through his work, whether he's dealing with questions of identity, language, technology, or any of the countless contradictions that life presents. He sees himself as a kind of organizer of chaos. I realized that I came to this planet to build bridges. Since I was a little child, might have to do with my double origin. My father being a German Jew and my mother being an agnostic Uruguayan trying to understand the almost opposite ways they had of the world. I had to learn through love to understand there is more than one view of things. Once you, as a small child, try to understand your reality and see this can be right, but this other thing can also be right, you're going to build bridges between people. Given the importance of language, meaning, and communication in his work, it's a complicated question for a writer like Drexler to make himself understood in English because so much of the strength and the art is in his words. On Tuesday at Town Hall, he did his best to bridge that language divide by speaking in English in between songs. And he asked that his Spanish-speaking fans, who clearly made up the majority of the audience, join him in hosting their English-speaking neighbors. Thank you so much for coming to our concert that it's with songs in Spanish of a new record, so we are the, your hosts tonight. If, you, if you're sitting next to a Spanish-speaking person, you can maybe, you know, make a friend. And... <laughs> You know, languages are bridges, so let's cross it. Let's cross the bridge. Jorge Drexler is on tour in the United States this month, playing in Miami, San Juan, Princeton, Boston, Washington, D.C., and then finishing in Las Vegas for the Latin Grammy ceremonies, where he's nominated for nine awards. Along the way, if there's a bridge to build, he will undoubtedly do his best to build it. To hear my full conversation with Jorge Drexler, visit wbgo.org studios. For the WBGO Journal, I'm Leo Sidrin. With the Summer Olympics headed to Los Angeles in 2028, the future appears bright for USA track and field. I had a chance recently to speak with two distinguished guests on my WBGO Studios podcast, Sports Jam. Max Siegel is the nationally renowned sports and entertainment executive and CEO of USA Track and Field, or USATF. Max has also worked in NASCAR and in the music industry. Max, welcome to Sports Jam. Thank you so much for having me on this fantastic show. It's an honor to have you on the show. And also joining us is Kara Winger. As she nears her retirement in the javelin throw this year, she placed second at the World Championships. She went on to win the National Championship and the Diamond League, going out on top in the U.S. Great to have you on the show, Kara. Thanks so much for having me. Thrilled to be here. So let's start off, Max, with you. Can you describe what World Athletics is all about and your involvement in it? Yes, uh, World Athletics is our global federation uh, that is comprised of 21 countries, and we are a proud member of that. Uh, I lead the United States Federation. I have uh, also in the past 
chaired the Global Marketing Commission and Advisory Council for the Federation, and they provide oversight uh, for the sport. We're collaborating currently on repositioning the sport and growth in the United States of America. And we're just really heavily involved in everything from uh, the Women's Commission, the global diversity, the competition side. And so members of USA Track and Field are represented in almost every aspect of world athletics. Speaking of those athletes, Kara Winger has been such a terrific Olympian, four-time track and field Olympian, in fact, in the javelin throw. And as we mentioned, she is on paper, not officially retired yet, but uh, in her mind, she has made up her decision. How difficult was it to finally give up something that you have been participating and excelling in for so many years, Kara? Well, Doug, I struggled. I don't think I fulfilled my ultimate potential um, even now, but in those middle years, it was really hard to kind of decide what I was still in the sport for. And I actually decided to retire after Eugene World Championships, the first time that USATF has had that meet on home soil. So World Athletics came to us um, in like the fall of 2017. I'm from the Pacific Northwest. And I said to myself, like, I've kind of been sort of purposeless in these middle years. There are injuries, blah, blah, blah. But how can I give myself a deadline that I know I can meet, that I know I can accelerate towards and then kind of wash my hands of this thing that I still love, but maybe my body isn't capable of doing anymore. So to go out the way that I have. Really good release. Good hit on it. Improves on that lead right now. Is anyone having a better week? than Kara Winger. What a fantastic throw and now she's got a she's forced to make a very important decision. Does she hold true with it and retire or does she get to come back to the world championships? Her very first Diamond League gold as she holds up that beautiful trophy. I spent some time after winning the Diamond League final and earning a bye to Budapest 2023 World Championships, um, considering if I wanted to use it or not. But I just I got absolutely everything out of track and field that I needed to um, with fantastic leadership, with fantastic teammates, with a really, really wonderful global experience. And then finally, all of it coming together to surpass my wildest dreams. So I don't need anything else from sport. Um, it was the best decision for me to make that choice four or five years ago and really stick to it. So I'm looking forward to the future, being involved in new ways. You know, many athletes make that decision, Tom Brady, right, to go to football and then changed his mind. Is there any possibility that Budapest in 2023 will come a calling again in your mind? No. I think that I've spent, I know what it feels like to not succeed at world championships. I know what it feels like to not meet my own expectations. And now that I finally have, I am ready to walk, you know, the other way, walk a different path, play a different role. Um, I want to still be there, but I'm going to be supporting teammates in new ways rather than as a teammate. Um, my coach, my strength coach of 13 years, Jamie Myers, he is of the USOPC. So there's a great relationship there as well between USATF and the um, Olympic governing body, Olympic and Paralympic in the US. He called me the John Elway of the Javelin. And I prefer that to the Tom Brady analogies that I've heard recently. Fantastic. Great comparison. And in a moment, Kara Winger 
See if she can keep that momentum going. She has that big smile. You know, she was the flag bearer for Team USA at the closing ceremonies at Tokyo. Really one of the great respected athletes for all of her involvement over the years. Nine U.S. titles. Her final season as a competitive elite javelin thrower trying to win one of those medals on her sixth and final throw. She's done it! What a huge throw for Carol Winger! That's how you retire from an elite javelin career. We'll wait for the measurement. And she's into silver position! Max Siegel became the fourth CEO of USA Track and Field in May of 2012. And since that time, he has led the USATF to financial growth and programmatic evolution that are unprecedented in the Olympic family. How did that happen, Max? Why are you so good at what you do? Well, first and foremost, we have an amazing product. We have the best athletes in the entire world. Uh, I've been around the Olympic movement for the last 30 years uh, from the moment I got out of law school. And I always marveled at the fact that the United States athletes won the most medals. They were the most prolific and impactful globally, but we had to catch up on the commercial side of the business. Uh, and so for me, I wanted to use all the skills I gained over my entire career uh, in the entertainment industry and in NASCAR and as a lawyer and really kind of marry that experience and skill set with the assets that we had. So we really had to start from the very basic foundation of the organization and align it with our mission. Uh, and then we had to take a look at what we needed from a resource, a staffing standpoint and develop assets that were attractive to you know commercial partners. Uh, and so for me, it was really uh, the most difficult thing was uh, reconstructing the infrastructure, uh, making sure that we had the appropriate resources to, to with the mission, but the product, I mean, our athletes were really easy to sell. And so we just went out, uh, you know, taking really small steps to give people confidence that investing in USA track and field as a business would uh, definitely give a return. Uh, and the other thing that we were doing is that we, we've been really deliberate about the diversity of our organization, diversity of experience, diversity of thought. And I think that, you know, with our diverse athletes, our staff and our way of approaching things and thinking, we became a really attractive property for those that wanted to partner with us. So I give the credit to our athletes and an amazing staff that we put together uh, and partners who support us. Max, you've done an incredible job. When you think of USA track and field, obviously we think of the Olympics, but world athletics, there are some differences. Can you explain them for our audience? Yeah, I think one of the things that has been frustrating for us all is that um, you know our amazing athletes uh, participate in the sport virtually year-round every single year uh, in addition to that and I'll go back to our elite athletes you know as a federation we oversee everything running in North America outside of the collegiate and the high school system so whether it's the Boston or New York Marathon you know, we are the governing and sanctioning body, the Junior Olympics or the Masters uh, Championships. So we have an opportunity as the number one participatory sport in high school and middle school uh, to have cultural impact. 
but on a yearly basis, our athletes compete, you know, around the globe, whether it's in the Diamond League, we have domestic opportunities in the United States as various levels to participate. Uh, and so for us, it is, you know, a pretty uh, active and robust sport. And we're excited about even rolling out things in the future. Now, in the off years from the Olympics, we have world championships. So whether they're the indoor world championships or the outdoor world championships, we have the opportunity for our athletes to um, participate internationally. In fact, uh, we put out, we put together and send out about 15 to 20 international teams around the world every single year. So there's a lot of activity that's happening, a lot of opportunities for our athletes to participate. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention that it's wonderful to watch our young people in the pipeline uh, participate in the under 20 events. And, you know, we have elite teams there. And so many of the stars uh, that are either soon to retire uh, that are competing right now have come up through our youth ranks in the organization. So there's always something going on in track and field domestically and globally. What's always exciting about the U.S. track and field team is the great female athletes and Kara being one of them. Kara, do you consider yourself a role model for others who want to be able to throw javelin or participate in any of the, the wonderful events in track and field? Well, that's my favorite thing about track and field, right, is there's something for literally everybody. Um, there's every body type out there. And for young girls, that's especially important to see that um, I'm maybe different from my peers, but there's somebody who looks like me that's throwing the shot put super far or the hammer or jumping over the bar in the pole vault. And I love being a part of that as a woman. Um, I grew up in lots of different sports. And when I finally found javelin, it was the last sport I ever tried. And it just made sense for me. But nobody, I never saw that in you know media so i just had to happen upon a coach that thought it would be a good idea and now with social media there's such an opportunity to show girls like who might find you just looking for people that are like them or something different or something unique to participate in um, to show them how it can be done so um you know through my injuries through setting an example in returning to sport and sharing about the whole process transparently um i would be very silly if i said i wasn't a role model um i've had to battle back from a lot of stuff and that takes a certain kind of like empowerment from the people around you when there isn't a whole lot of uh praise from the outside world when you're really in the thick of it so it's really been helpful for me to share my journey just because I want to and whoever comes along, um, I'm absolutely happy to have. And in the the giant scale of track and field, you know, USATF, Max just mentioned that there are so many events to keep track of, that I think they do an excellent job of pointing directly to the athletes, like directly to the people on social media who are telling their own stories. Because um, that's really the only way that you can um, tell all of them is to empower the athletes themselves to do it and help as much as you can along the way while you're trying to keep track of hundreds of events in a season. So I love when I get messages from people who have just tried the javelin for the first time, whether they be 12 years old, um, girls in middle school, or 94 in the master's world. It's my favorite. You think about how much we've grown as far as learning about athletes. Through the years, they would say, you know, football players were, were not intelligent. No, I always thought it was the reporters didn't ask intelligent questions when it, when it came to, to dealing <laughs> with athletes. But Olympians... When we see those special videos, 
there's always great stories of triumph, of tragedy, overcoming tragedy. It's part of the Olympic spirit that we get riled up as fans when we root for, you know, Kara Winger and others. It's it's something special about Olympic athletes and something special about USA track and field. You had a great career at Purdue University. You became uh, the first female athlete from Purdue to qualify for three Olympic Games. And I just spoke with Nancy Lieberman, right, who was getting a statue uh, raised in her honor at Old Dominion. And she remembers when it wasn't so easy for female athletes to get the recognition and even get scholarships. And she was put down when she was playing basketball with, with, with the young boys and that how do you feel we are right now with female athletics? Are, are we really getting to a point where we're getting some equality like we need to have? I think it starts with awareness, 100%. So seeing a statue go up of a woman on a campus is a huge step. Um, when I competed at my fourth Olympic Games in Tokyo, um, the the true just highlight of my career was being voted Team USA Closing Ceremonies flag bearer by my peers. Um, so I think like my answer to this question is that the women who are playing that role are pointing to what everyone should be consuming, which is their fellow women. Like I, you know, I was 11 months post out my second ACL. I didn't achieve my dreams um, on the Olympic stage, but the women around me supported me in a way that I can never repay and still can't wrap my head around. Um, I try to do that every day in my job at an organization called Parity. We are directing funds to women athletes um, with data statistics, like values driven and intentional sponsorship ma matching just for women. But Parity is just part of a tidal wave of organizations like that are, that are highlighting women on social media, in media, in research, um, in all kinds of, you know, new key performance indicators that tell the world that women's sports are worth watching and women are worth paying um, within those sports because it's very exciting. We're just behind. We're just behind the men and all we can do is keep pushing forward. But Again, women that are already in the sport, um, like Nancy, like you mentioned, are pointing to the progress that we've made and continuing to push that progress forward. And I'm proud to be a part of it. You can see my entire Sports Jam conversation with Kara Winger and Max Siegel on the WBGO Facebook page. Thanks for listening to the WBGO Journal. I'm Doug Doyle. Join us next Saturday morning at 5.30 for another edition of the award-winning WBGO Journal. Meanwhile, stay tuned to the world's greatest jazz station, WBGO and WBGO.org.